Hi everyone, I'm Ben. And I'm Will. And uh, welcome to this series of Will and Ben, the Wildlife Men. Welcome back to another episode. Yes, it's been a while and um, we've been reviewed, haven't we, Ben? We have indeed. Yeah, what was the, uh, what was the, <laughs> the sort of conclusion in the end? Oh, it was brilliant. It was the BBC Wildlife magazine and they said a lot of kind words, really, didn't they? But the phrase that has stuck out for both of us is uh, not very slick, but pleasingly authentic. Which I'll go with that. Great. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Go with that. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> no, I love it. No, what a, yeah, it was really it was really great to have that little review. Really um and lots of other great podcasts in that review to check out as well, um, for sure. Yeah, definitely. And what was that beautiful sound uh we heard just Blim? <laughs> yes. So we've thrown in a little uh, a little taster of what's to come later in the podcast as to the species that uh, I will be going into a bit more depth about later on and uh, we'll save that surprise for later hey yeah it's such a magical sound I'm very excited for it but yeah how are you how have you been I'm good yeah I am looking out at a dark evening and it's only what half seven at night so autumn is very much making itself felt now and uh, there's been a real change in the season these last this last sort of week really it's gone from really warm sunshiny days to sort of free well for me freezing cold is like seven degrees now and uh, massive showers rolling through off cardigan bay and big hailstorms and all sorts but looking at where you are it uh, it looks a little bit colder again yeah so i'm actually an hour ahead of you at the moment because somehow we've managed to get out to the pyrenees to do our insect migration field work and you talk about changing of the season i was was it two days ago? I was swimming in a, um, a bit, a, a bit, a very, very cold mountain glacial lake, but I was swimming. And uh, today I woke up to, I think there's 30 centimetres of snow on the pass. And it's so cold and so wintry. And, but of course, it's the Pyrenees. And so it's so beautiful. And so, yeah. And it's, yeah. it's just I've... suddenly changed and the entire landscape has changed. It's, so exactly. <laughs> it must be such an inspiring place to be right now. I mean, I've, everyone should definitely follow you and, and see some of the images that you've been producing. But it's just just looks like it's just so spectacular where you are. Yeah. And the well, what we're studying this, this insect migration is potentially even more spectacular than the views, like these tiny, tiny things being able to travel from well, many thousands of kilometers from northern Europe, potentially into Africa. And we're catching um, these, uh, I know you're quite jealous of this, Ben, but we're catching these huge death's head hawk moths. They're, they're just, they go right into Africa and they've just, they're full of stories. Like these are moths with a skull on their backs and they squeak and they, they, they steal honey as well. They feed on honey. And I found out the other day that they actually smell like honey as well. 
Oh and, <laughs> they steal honey from honeybees and they yeah. do it by um by smelling like releasing a pheromone to fool the honeybees that it isn't actually a massive moth intruding into their hive but just another one of the bees it kind of just shows how thick bees are sometimes <laughs> <laughs> amazing of the moth to exploit this lack of brain cells of the bees <laughs> Oh, that's a bit of an insult to the bees. I mean, those incredible colonies of, and hives. But yes, the... the hive mind. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the death's head hawk moth is one of those moths that, you know, when you're, you know, 12, 10 years old and start getting into moths and like flick through the guide and it, and it lands on that page and you see that, it's like, right, I am going to see that in my lifetime. And, you know, oh my goodness, to be catching them on the mountain passes where you are on migration and seeing them in action it's just oh i'm very jealous i have to say <laughs> it is pretty it's very exciting we had a um family zoom call which was as chaotic as you can expect from a very <laughs> technologically uh ancient family the <laughs> and uh, good fun scaring grandma with moths all over my face etc oh wow. but yeah it's been great and you've been on on isolated on your own little island haven't you yes yeah you've been in a on an island in the in the mountains as it were i've uh, i've been back on the island where i uh, used to live so i've been on bardsey for a few weeks um which is another reason partly why we've had a bit of a uh, a break since the last podcast it's uh, been a bit tricky with you in the mountains and me on a tiny island off the welsh <laughs> coast <laughs> to get the next one out but no it was great um there was such a crazy crazy variety of weather conditions whilst I was there but one of probably my favorite things was cowering behind a tiny little stone bird hide on the very tip of the island as a huge storm swept through and the seas just you know in the space of half a day had just mounted up into these incredible waves and just watching gannets and manx shearwaters just dancing over the faces and over the over the tops of them it was just oh it's just you know it just blows your mind the conditions they're able to you know sort of thrive in not just survive but thrive in and oh it was yeah just absolutely <laughs> spectacular and as you like the the conditions these birds have to or pretty much all birds have to survive is just incredible right so there was a week ago maybe 70 kilometer hour winds at the on the pass where we're looking at the migration and a 70 kilometer hour headwind and all the butterflies had stopped, all the hoverflies had stopped, but there was still maybe four, 500 swallows coming through every 15 minutes or like within 15 minute counts. And wow. it's, it just shows that, so these birds are obviously warm blooded and so they can't afford to stop. Whereas the insects, they, because they're cold blooded, they don't have any like energetic needs. They can just, hide in a flower hide under a stone yeah. and just go into a bit of torpor not waste any energy but a swallow has to keep warm and so yeah. it can't afford to stop and so it can still migrate over like two and a half kilometers up in the mountains into 70 kilometer an hour headwinds with stronger gusts just to make it all the way south and that's yeah. that is more beneficial to them and more energy um efficient and them staying in the UK, staying in one place. Like, how incredible is that? That this migration has evolved, migratory ability has evolved to be energy efficient, yet it has such incredible demands on the birds itself. Yeah, 
it's it's pretty spectacular isn't it and like you say it's fascinating looking at the strategies that the different animal groups adopt for those sort of migratory um techniques um it is it is just it to see it in action like like that is is just amazing it just blows the mind and you've been um, doing a bit on birds as well you had a few meadow pipits or quite a lot of meadow pipits a couple of weeks ago and then at, then at last week i had a load in the in the mountains and i i wonder if they're almost the same ones i bet they're not far uh, yeah. similar populations it's fascinating these different routes but yeah. i guess this is what we'll talk about on a later thing but your bird that your your animal giving game away a little bit uh you're talking about today is has some incredible journeys of itself of its own doesn't it indeed it does yeah it's uh an ocean ocean going migration of a little contrast to the um overland one but uh yeah um should we have a have a listen yes let's listen it's mid-september i'm perched on an earthen wall or cloud in Welsh, on a small island off the very western tip of North Wales. Unessentially. This hump-shaped island lies some two miles offshore in the tides of the Irish Sea, and tens of thousands of rather special seabirds call it their summer home. Here in front of me, on this particularly bright starry night, is one of them. In the dim light afforded by a new moon, I can just about make out its silhouette as I squat down and frame its shape against the orange glow of artificial light that brightens the sky above the mainland many miles away to the east. Wings are outstretched and fluttering gently, catching some updrafts as the light breeze occasionally strengthens. This curious creature has been on this bank by night exercising its wings like this for many weeks, but perhaps tonight is the night. 1am. Orion, that characteristic of constellations, begins to appear on the western horizon as the vista above rotates about the north star, Polaris. My eyes are now well adapted to the low light and are still firmly focused on this bird in front of me, which pays no attention to my presence whatsoever. Periodic wing fluttering has taken place over the night so far. Once again the wings are unfolded and stretched out, the white underside now gleaming pale in the starlight. Its fluttering deepens as a breeze eases through, and then the bird is airborne and off into the night. Gone. If the light was greater, perhaps, I would see its course out to sea, its first dip in the ocean as it alights on the sea surface. I sit and wonder how on earth this amazing bird, after spending almost its entire life thus far in a burrow beneath the ground, will now be able to navigate its way to the waters off South America only to return most likely to this exact spot in the coming years to scout out its own burrow. What remarkable animals. The species in question is of course the Manx Shearwater, or a Derendruckin Manau in Welsh. This pigeon-sized seabird, like almost all other tube-nosed seabirds, spends most of its life at sea, but they must return to land to breed, and for this species at least, that land comprises a scattering of coastal haunts and island strongholds, in the northern Atlantic. Wales is particularly important for them, with three colonies making up over 50% of the entire global breeding population. Here on Bardsey, we have the world's fourth largest colony after those of Scoma and Skokum in South Wales, and the Isle of Rum off Western Scotland. 
Main and breeding sites are too fraught to persist. The eggs and chicks too vulnerable towards predation from the likes of rats, weasels, stoats, cats, and any other number of mammalian predators. But islands are, on the whole, safe refuges for these charismatic birds. Where safe breeding grounds such as islands exist, these birds excavate a burrow in the ground that could be anywhere between a couple of feet long to many metres in length. Within this burrow is their nest, a little gathering of grass stems, where the female will lay their single white egg come May, which will then be dutifully incubated in a series of alternate stints by both the male and female, each period lasting around a week to ten days. After a period of about 50 days, a small ball of grey fluff emerges, the chick weighing in at about 50 grams upon hatching. This ball of down will be fed by its parents over the coming months until it becomes so fat that it can't dream of fitting out of its burrow. Their weight can exceed 700 grams on occasion, almost double that of a typical adult that weighs in between 350 and 400 grams. And it's at this almost obese point that the chick's parents abandon it. They lovingly leave their offspring in its solitary state to slim down and convert its fat into feather. To spend time strengthening its wings, once it can fit out of the burrow of course, and learn the pattern of constellations circling above it for use in its ocean navigation once away and over the waves. These birds are masters of the sea and their navigational abilities through horrendous weather conditions and ferocious storms is immense. They thrive when the winds would keep most people indoors, flourishing on the dynamic force that enables them to shear across waves and barely flap a wing in the process. Calm conditions are a drain for these ocean-goers. I sit on the bank and look out to the horizon. The island's lighthouse flashes a red beam at intervals. The air is silent a remarkable contrast to the scene in midsummer, when all about the island a cacophony of otherworldly noises rings out over the land and sea. Manx Shearwaters produced an amazing call, which historically led passing mariners to describe the isle as a place haunted by ghosts due to the wailing cries of these birds. Males and females can be told apart on their wheezing, cacophonous calls, varying in the length of inhalation and exhalation notes that they produce. So many studies have been directed at the lives of these mysterious seabirds, and yet we still have so much to discover about their ecology and behaviour. GPS tracking is a particularly exciting area of research that's thrown up amazing discoveries in the last 10 years. Manx shearwaters being hefty enough to take the weight of some of the loggers which researchers have used. Here on Bardsey, I was lucky enough to be able to contribute to this knowledge base in 2017, whilst carrying out research for my dissertation project at the University of Exeter. Many, many sleepless nights of work over the summer months involved deploying and retrieving over 30 GPS tags from various adult shearwaters as they progressed through the incubation and chick-rearing stages of their breeding cycle. Carefully retrieving the GPS tags and plugging them into my laptop to download the data was always one of the most exciting of moments, yet also nerve-wracking in case the technology had failed me. Suddenly a track would download and appear on a map in front of me, and I could see the amazing lines tracing their oceanic routes over the Celtic seas, and even off to western Scotland in many instances. It was incredible to see where exactly these birds had been going to find food for their young, with round trips over 2,500 kilometres in some cases. 
It's vital work for assessing the important sites that these birds use for their feeding grounds. So we're able to advocate their protection against developments or industrial fishing activities should the threats arrive. Back on my earth bank, the cold is getting to me. Autumn is making itself felt. Contemplation over and my cosy bed calling me. I retreat from the coast and scrunch along the pebbly track back to the house. How many of these fledglings are left to leave, I wonder, and how many will make it back? I for one cannot wait for their most bizarre of calls to welcome back the spring season when they arrive next March. But for the time, I bid them a bon voyage as they skim southwards to the southern seas. Ah, such good memories, Ben, of when I came to, or well, a couple of times I've come to Bardsey and helped out a little bit with your um, catching of the Manxies, sticking your arms so deep in this burrow just to feel this sort of soft, furry lump and then picking out this massively fat animal and um, just incredible that it has the ability to then travel, what was it, 2,500 kilometres or round trips, like not very long after it uh, loses all this weight again. Brilliant, exactly. brilliant little thing, yeah. isn't it? They are incredible. Like, yeah, and like you say, the um, sort of attaching, I didn't really touch on that during the podcast, but obviously, you know, the bird ringing, placing rings on the legs is such an important activity especially with Manx shearwaters because um, a lot of birds on these islands like Bardsey and Skokum in, in South Wales ringing has been going on since the 1950s on these and so because they're so long lived um, you know some of these birds that were ringed in like you know, 1970s 1980s are still alive and so you can be wandering around at night in June and carefully pick up a Manx Shearwater, see that it's ringed, read the ring number and it's like, oh, this one's 40 years old, this one's 30 years old. It's like, really? That's just like, it's older than me. This animal is actually older, you know, it's twice my age. age. Yeah. <laughs> it has, it's, they are amazing. Just, um, so, um, yeah, so the reason they're all struggling is, like, it's amazing that you have 50% of the entire um, breeding colony in, in Wales or three colonies just like of the global breeding population but what do you think that they'll be they'd be able to recover if more islands became um, yeah more islands became like mammal rat free for example so could they come back to Lundy for example in the um, in the Bristol Channel yeah yeah no totally so you know they are mostly restricted to you know these islands offshore um for their breeding colonies and since they eradicated rats on lundy um a few years ago now there's already over over a thousand pairs i think they're now breeding um wow. and similarly on an island off the sillies on gough island i think it's called um they've now got the first indications that manx shearwaters are returning to the to the islands there so you know it's 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 such a story of positive restoration where you're able to do such well in in sort of concept a simple thing as removing things like rats from these islands and then the seabirds like manx shearwaters able to return and breed it's it's a really it's a really great opportunity to be able to restore some of these you know really important seabird populations yeah, definitely. Uh, so was it a thousand pairs or a thousand individuals on Lundy now? 
I'm not entirely sure of the exact number, but it's around a ballpark figure of something like a thousand pairs now, I think. Yeah. That's amazing. I remember when I was, I can't remember how old I was, maybe six, seven, maybe a little bit older. And um, my mum took me and my brother to Lundy Island and we spent a week or two weeks camping and just um, working with Biz Bell, who you know. Um, she, She goes around these, her job is basically to eradicate rats and help seabirds off islands all around the world. And that's what I did as like a seven-year-old will go around trying to get rid of the rats on the island by setting traps. Uh, for, uh, exactly. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's really cool. I didn't realise. Yeah, I didn't realise that you'd been there <laughs> and helped out. That's great to have been able to take part in what is now a real great success story. It was fascinating, but I, my favourite memory was um, being allowed to drive the quad bike. I must admit. Not, not helping the birds at all. <laughs> but yeah, it's, it must, yeah, there's such, such cool things. And amazing how quickly um, these birds came back as well. Like it just shows what you can do. Because were there any birds on there while Lundy had rats on there? I'm not entirely sure. It, it, it might have been that some pairs were trying to breed, but obviously the rats were taking the eggs or even the chicks in some cases. But you're right you know the the rate at which they can increase when birds start arriving and breeding is is it is amazing i mean on party at the moment there's probably been a 40 to 50 percent increase in the population over the last <laughs> 10 years in some places which is just mind-blowing there must have that so why oh we're gonna be chatting for so long about this but why why is this increase happening they're not entirely sure they're just doing one of the updated censuses at the moment so literally going around and counting every active borough on the island which is somewhere <laughs> in the region of you know over twenty thousand boroughs but from the <laughs> census results some so far in some areas they're counting twice as many active boroughs as there were five or ten years ago um and we're not entirely sure why this is happening because nothing's really happened in the last 20 years in terms of you know rats or rabbits and things um so it might be something you know further offshore maybe the the foraging or something is increasing the ability of of birds to to live there and it's not restricted in the amount of food they can get or something it's it's not it's not entirely sure really maybe that our seas are in maybe in the irish sea is recovering to an extent that there's more food or but as you yeah. showed, they go right up into Scotland. So it yeah. could, be, could be anything. Ah, oh, that's so cool. And fascinating, like a proper, well, hopefully a real success story and shows what conservation and what people like you can do to yeah. uh, a real, it must make you feel amazing seeing all these birds come back. But imagine Agreed. being a, a sailor in, I don't know, the early, early um, you know, 13th century or something and then hearing this eerie eerie sound and you're at night ah, i must think there'd be a whole island full of witches or yeah <laughs> so cool because it is yeah. kind of you could almost imagine a human well you probably couldn't imagine a human making that sound but it's just otherworldly otherworldly i remember it keeping me awake at night um while i was on Vardzi. <laughs> <laughs> yeah it, it you get used to it after uh after 10 years <laughs> <laughs> must be so comforting now oh no right. uh, what fascinating list of things and what cool work you're doing as well um one more thing do they yep. i can't did do they actually um 
dig their own burrows all the time or do they sometimes use rabbit burrows and things like that so on the islands where you have rabbits like Skoma and Skokum, they will use rabbit warrens and you can actually have a storm petrel, a Manx shearwater, a puffin and a rabbit all in the same little warren. Um, <laughs> but generally on Bardsey, they're all, because there are no rabbits there anymore, they, they are amazing. They're able to dig all of their own burrows. They've got such sharp claws, as you know, from handling them when you're over there. Yeah. <laughs> and why are we not seeing a big increase of puffins on Bardsey? Is it just because... Well, interesting you should say that, actually. We are seeing an increase in the last few years. There never used to be that, that many puffins on right. birds. We now have maybe about 120, 150 breeding pairs, so they are slowly increasing. Hmm. Oh, that is fascinating, isn't it? So do you think it can be extended, this sort of increase, to a lot of different types of seabirds then? Well, I mean, for a lot of the seabirds that nest on Bardsey and other islands, the main thing at the moment is obviously climate change and changes in prey distribution in the water. And obviously that's very difficult to address apart from on a, a much larger scale. Um, so that sort of thing is, is very uncertain, sadly, um, what exactly is going to happen for a lot of species, particularly surface feeders like kittiwakes. Um, so for that sort of thing, we just need to really study them very closely to see how they're responding and study the changes that are going on and, and obviously like we all know address the root causes <laughs> yeah yeah no definitely but it is um admittedly very heartening to know that just a very small number of people like yourself doing such great work with the conservation um and biz as well with her eradication projects all over the world can really have a incredible um effect very positive effect yeah totally and i think if anyone's if anyone's listening to this definitely check out the work of um island conservation the organization because they they do this you know all across the world and some of the results they have are just astounding for such a you know for the in, input of manpower and things that you put in or you know people helping out with these projects the impacts that can have on, on biodiversity and restoring islands is is absolutely incredible so check out their work for sure yeah oh, it's brilliant it shows that if you give everything a little bit of space and a little bit of work um everything can just bounce back yeah i think yeah. that's uh, that's a good statement to end on that's i think so as well <laughs> yeah nice one cool all right well next week hopefully i'll be well, I'll definitely chat more about my work that I'm doing uh, high up here in the mountains of France and Spain. So, Sounds great. Can't wait, Well, All right. See you next week, Ben. See you next week. Bye. <laughs>